Okay, I'm glad you're here. So we're, we're right before the, the beginning of the three weeks right now, in the month of Tammuz. And uh, it's worth going over exactly what's going on in this, in this period of the year. And I just, because this is sort of when we, when we experience or, or re-experience the kind of the, the, the more tragic elements of, of uh, Jewish history. And on that point, I just want to make a wider observation. What it means, sort of like to to live with to live with the times, to live with to live with the Torah, to to to, to understand what a uh, basically a traditional Jewish life has has meant, and and what it means even today. And by that I mean is that is that not only does each person um, live their own life, and and that's filled with ups and downs, and then Ideally, you're a member of a community, whatever community that is, and so you're also participating in all of the um, the, the joys and, and hopefully not sadness, but but it's seemingly inevitable the ups and downs of the of the community as well. So you're going through your life with its ups and downs. You're going through the community's life its ups and downs. But here's the point that I want to make. Also, on a yearly basis, you're experiencing all the ups and downs that ever had took place among the Jewish people throughout history, over thousands of years. And you're experiencing it in a very real, concrete way. Because um, halacha, um, often mistranslated as uh, Jewish law, but, but that's, that's not incorrect. Um, I, I heard Rabbi Wein say something on a, on a tape the other day that I, I really liked. He said, he made a point very strongly, I forgot the point, but afterwards he said, I might not be right, but I'm definitely not wrong. And I thought, wow, that's a very, that's a very interesting position to take, you know? In other, words, in other words, what I'm saying might not be the ultimate answer, but it's certainly not incorrect. And that, that in itself is a... Uh, uh, just a, a valuable territory to know that that exists in terms of argumentation, you know. But anyway, that aside, um, when it comes to Jewish law or, or halakha or the way, which is really what it means, which is a very flowy, very nice, very nice concept, you know, where you're positioning yourself to be in harmony with yourself and the universe around you, um, that's... that's it's a very concrete thing to be in touch with all the ups and downs of, of, of Jews throughout the thousands of years. Because, like, for instance, on a very practical level, we're not supposed to get haircuts, say. Because that's a form of um, sort of beautification, and uh, that's, that's during these three weeks. Or buy something, a, a significant new item, that merits saying uh, the blessing, the Shachianu, where you thank God for... Um, sustaining you that you could live to this moment to receive such a thing. In other words, if you could delay such a such a new um, sort of like wonderful purchase, then, then you ought to. And so the idea is that it's not just a, a conceptual thing like, oh, 2,000 years ago or 3,000 years ago or 500 years ago this happened. It's no, my life right now is actually being being seriously affected by that which happened. So you're actually living through not just whatever's going on in your own life and in the life of your community, but what's happened through the thousands of years of Jewish history. So that's an awesome thing. And that's the good times and, and, and the harder times. And so we're entering into that period, the, the harder times right now. But that's just worth thinking about for a moment that 
that that you experience that you experience just um, all of history, your own personal one, the community one, and and the historical one, every single year. You go through it every day. That's that's pretty massive, actually. But anyway, um, so I just just right now we're on the threshold of of entering into these three weeks, which is which is commemorating basically the, the destruction of the of the Holy Temple and um, many other tragedies that took place. And let's just understand what that is, just for a moment. We've discussed it many times, but let's just have it in mind in, in just like a one-sentence level. The base of Migdash, the Holy Temple, was that connection between heaven and earth. So, so that's, that, that, that sort of harmonic convergence, that, if you want to think in terms of electrical wiring, that connection point where there's like a, a, a nice solid connection, where there's just harmony between heaven and earth, that point has been turned off. Now that doesn't mean, by the way, that, that God isn't with us and that God isn't manifest and that God isn't guiding the world. He's doing all of those things. But, you know, there's, there's something, I don't know if you experienced this, but, but this made a very deep impression on me, I don't know whether it was in junior high school or high school or whatever it is, when you get a chance in science class to, to use a, um, a microscope. And I remember like using a microscope and you know, kind of focusing it and go, oh, okay, you know, because it goes from completely blurry, like you don't even know what it is, to, okay, I see it now. And then you go, well, you turn it a little bit more and you go, oh, no, 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 now I see it. Now, now, now I see it. And then you think that it's in focus, and then you turn it one more time and go, oh, yeah. You know, it almost is like an epiphany. You know what I'm saying? So basically, the idea is the world is really out of focus right now. You know, we're like one turn or two turns of the microscope away from real clarity. And that's in direct correlation with the fact that the base of Migdash, the Holy Temple, is not here. If the, if the Holy Temple is here, then all of a sudden everything reaches a state of clarity which like shames the blurriness that we're living in right now. So that's, that's kind of like the core of what's going on over here. You know, it's not a building that we're mourning. It's not a building that we're mourning. There's a, there's a flow and a, a connectivity that's been lost and, and, a, and, a, and a focus that's been lost. And to the whole world, by the way. This is not just a Jewish people issue. This is to the entire world. Remember, when the prophet Yeshaya, Isaiah says, in the name of God, that, that this house is a house for all people. And on, 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 on the holiday of Sukkot, they brought um, offerings, the Jewish people brought offerings on behalf of all of the nations of the world. So, 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 and in, and in fact, it says, the, the Talmud talks about that, that when, when Mashiach comes, all the nations of the world are going to basically be taking Jews to learn. They're going to be going, what are you doing not learning? <laughs> like, they... They, so the, the value of the Torah is universal. And as we know, there, there's seven mitzvahs. See, there's, there's seven mitzvahs that, that, all, that all people are, are responsible for. And, um, and that's very important because no one should ever make the mistake, no one should ever make the mistake 
of thinking that somehow, you know something, we've got all these independent uh, fiefdoms, um, and then you've got Christianity over here, and Islam over here, and Judaism over here, and everything like that. Judaism is a very universal religion, and there's a role for all peoples in it. And so, so it happens to be that the Jewish people take a leadership role. That's our responsibility, and it comes at a great price, by the way. You know, as if I can quote Spider-Man, with power comes responsibility. You know, but, um, but nonetheless, there's, there's, something, there's something real to it. And as Jewish history is a, a testimony to, to what it means to be charged with being a light unto the nations, you know. Someone said to me the other day that, um, are, is, are, is the world getting better? Like, you know, is it getting better? You know, is it, you know, this... I was telling them that you know we, the, the destiny of the world is is the fact that the world is driving toward toward perfection. I mean that's what God had in mind before He created the world was a perfect world, it was a world with no war or, or or hatred or obstacles to serving Him or anything like that. That's that is the inevitable path, the destiny of the world itself. And He was like, it really, is that the case? Though? Is that is that happening? Can we see that happening? And I said to him, just very simply, look at the fact that, you know, the, the world is a pretty big place. I'm just talking about geographically. I mean, and, and what I mean is, is that try to walk around the world, right? That's going to take a while. That's, that's not easy to walk around the world. So from, from, the, from the standpoint, from the reference point of our two legs, right? Like someone told me one time he was in Israel, and I asked him how he was getting to this particular place, and he... And he the Egid is the, uh, is the name of the bus line in Israel. He told me that he was going to take the number 11, which was slang for your two legs. Right? <laughs> so, from the, so from the reference point of your two legs, the world is a pretty big place, right? You're, you're, you're probably, if you grew up, um, you know, a thousand years ago or 500 years ago or whatever it is, there's a good chance wherever you're born let's say in the United States, just to give an example, you're not going to China. You're never going to get to China, right? You'll probably never meet someone from China, right? So, think of it this way. The fact that the world itself has been so connected, just on a simple geographical level, that you can go anywhere in the entire world, and anyone can go anywhere in the entire world, and the entire world has shrunk down to the size of almost a neighborhood. But now, let's go further with this. The fact that with the internet right now, all of the history of the knowledge of the world, I'm not talking about the history of the knowledge of the world, is now available to you at your fingertips in a moment's notice. So if you want to just have two very clear, very, very simple examples of how the entire world is coming together toward one, you know, those are two, like, very, like, when you see those two, you go, oh, yeah, well, yeah. I see how everything is really coming together. And it's only accelerating. And it's only going to become more toward that. But, of course, as we know in terms of spirituality, anytime there's a spiritual advance that's um, on the threshold, there's always the counterbalance. There's always that other side which is going to try to knock it off and delay it. So as increasing levels of oneness come down into the world, there will also be, like, you know, where did you see it? Now, now it's not so hot, but as of a few years ago, it was like this massive new movement, which was the new atheism, they called it, right? 
People writing huge best-selling books about the fact that there's absolutely no God. You know? Which, you know, anyway, what can I say about that? (laughs) It's like, okay, okay, you know, so... um, you know, I'm, I'm reminded, I, I don't know if any of you guys read uh, Mad Magazine growing up, but, um, you know, one, one of my favorite words, the, uh, in, in the marginalia, you know, in the, in the margins, they had, uh, I think it's Sergio Argonis, I don't know if I'm saying his name right, but anyway, he was this artist who would draw up and down the columns and, and everything like that. And, and I always appreciated the fact that, one in particular, it was a, it was a diagram or a, a drawing of an archaeological dig. And there were maybe four or five holes going straight down and at different lengths. This one went down maybe, I don't know, 20 feet. This one went down 50 feet. This one went down 100 feet. And they all stopped without uncovering anything. And underneath each of the three, under the, te- under the, 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 the 50-foot one, there was a ruin. And under the 100-foot one, there was a ruin. And under the other one, there was a ruin. And they stopped just short of finding it each, each time, you know? And I thought, well, you know, that's, that, that's what it is, you know? Bless you. So, so uh, yeah, okay. So, so let's get back to the, 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 the calendar right now. So, so, we're about to enter into these three weeks. Now, there's this very dual nature that we have to understand about these three weeks. Um, l- let, me, let me tell you something. You see, well, uh, let me make the point just first, just very simply. You see, it's a sad time. That's what it is. It's a sad time. But in its essence, it's not a sad time. In its essence, it's a very happy time. And just very quickly, I know you all know it, but the, 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 the prophet Zechariah, Hashem says through him that the, that the 17th of Tammuz and the 9th of Av, right, these are, these are going to be, and he names some other days, these are going to be very big holidays. And in their essence, they are very big holidays. Right? Now, I just want to explore one thing and, and, and just, just alert you to something deeper. I've been privileged. Um, you know, there's some very exciting news going on in the um, Rib Shlomo Karlbach uh, world, and it's still behind the scenes, but, but just so everyone should look forward to it and be excited about it. Um, thousands and thousands of pages have been transcribed of Rib Shlomo's Torahs. And they have not been published yet. There are a few books out there, but there are many, many volumes of awesome, 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 awesome books that are going to be coming out in the next few years, God willing. And things that where Rev Shlomo says, because I've seen seen, uh, some of this stuff, and where Rev Shlomo says in a few lines, and this is just me talking right now, so this is my own humble opinion, but in a few lines... He distills concepts which are so deep that unless he said them, I think that a, a, a normal Talmud Chacham could go his whole lifetime and not even grasp that thought that's being laid out right there. And so there is an incredibly profound understanding of the Torah 
that is going to be widely accessible in the not too distant future. One of the points that Reb Shlomo makes. Where do they get published? Probably, maybe, let's say, probably, I don't know, I don't know. In the next couple of years, we should begin to see some stuff. So, um, and and there are some books out now, by the way. But but this is but this is going to be something even more. Okay. Anyway, here's something that Reb Shlomo says about the about uh, the the flood uh, in Parshas Noach. But but it's very applicable to these three weeks as well. And this dual nature, the fact that we're experiencing this this level of destruction, and we're we're in our own lives actually in a state of you know, active mourning um, in, in, you know, certain particular ways. And, and yet, the essence of it is, is not, is a happy time, okay? So, what Rip Shlomo says is, is, is that, you see, you have to understand something, that there's a place where the flood reached, and there's a place where the flood didn't reach. You see, because the, the, the rabbis teach that the flood actually never got to Eretz Yisrael, to the land of Israel. And if you... And you want to hear what one of the proofs is of that, by the way? Where did the dove get the olive branch to bring back to Noah? Right? If the whole world was underwater, where was there a tree? Where was there an olive tree? In the land that thrived sufficiently at that point. Well, well, I'll tell you what the, the rabbis teach, that the flood never hit Israel. And that that tree was from Israel. And so this idea, this idea that, that destruction can come, but destruction only reaches a certain place. There's a place that can't be destroyed. And we're not just talking about the land of Israel right now. We're talking about creation in general. That God sustains creation in a very, very deep and often mysterious way. But that it only reaches, destruction only reaches to a certain level. But not all the way. You know? I know you can talk about it a lot of times in our own lives. You can go, you know something? Everything is falling apart. Everything is falling apart. My personal life, my business life, my, 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 my ability to, to stay calm and happy, everything's falling apart. But then, let's say you go to a doctor, and what does the doctor say? Well, your blood pressure's great, your blood count's great, your cholesterol's great. You're, you're very healthy. So you realize, I mean, I'm just giving that as just a very simple example, but you realize that, well, wait a second, I guess everything isn't falling apart. If everything is really falling apart, but I should be falling apart. You see, I'm not falling apart, so I guess everything is not falling apart. So, so in a very deep way, you see, Tammuz, Tammuz really is the beginning of the three weeks. And Tammuz, every single month, is connected with a different tribe. And Tammuz is connected with the tribe of Reuven. And it's very appropriate, because Reuven represents... Reuven was the firstborn of Yaakov and Leah. And so, you know, the firstborn is actually a big deal in Torah. 
That's sort of like the embodiment of your strength. So it should be that the firstborn of Yaakov and Leah, right? That the firstborn should be the, the mighty one of Israel. It should be. It should be. And yet you see that Reuven, because he was a little bit impetuous, and he made some wrong decisions, and he didn't, he didn't play the leadership role that he needed to in the, in the um, incident with Yosef, and he moved Yaakov of Hinu's bed. Okay, what, what was the idea with that? Just very briefly. Um, after uh, Rachel, Rachel died, um, um, Yaakov's main bed was in her tent. And then Yaakov moved it to the tent of her, her handmaid, or what the status of that person was, it's a, it's a little unclear. It may have been her half-sister, whatever it was. But it was, he, Yaakov decided, for whatever reason, that his, his heart was still, so to speak, in the, in the camp of Rachel, right? But Reuven, the, the firstborn of Yaakov and the son of Leah, felt that this was a tremendous insult that, that to his mother's honor, that ya- Yaakov's the main resting place of his bed shouldn't be in her tent. So what did he do? He moved Yaakov's bed from, from where Yaakov put it to, Rachel, to, to Leah's tent. And, and actually, one of the very interesting things is, is that Jacob never rebuked him until his deathbed. You know, I once heard a rabbi say something, which is, if you want to give someone a piece of your mind, think about it five times first before you do it, and then don't do it. <laughs> and so, it was, it's, 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 it's amazing, actually, that, 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 that Yaakov, who really experienced this as a tremendous affront, as a tremendous affront, didn't, didn't say anything for decades. Decades. I mean, that's... Talk about self-mastery. That's, that, 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 that was an, an, an aspect of his greatness. Not only that, but you see that um, Moshe learned from Yaakov. And Moshe only gives his rebuke to the tribes at his deathbed when he gives over the blessings as well. Although Moshe didn't have a deathbed, so to speak, like Yaakov did, but on the last day of his life. You know, so, and it says that he learned that from... He learned that from, from Jacob, from Yaakov. So, anyway. But here's the point. The point is, is that Reuven, the firstborn, who correlates with the month of Tammuz, you see that this, actually, that this actually fits together very much with the destiny of the entire world and with world history as well. Because the Jewish people have this very sort of like I don't even know how to describe how the nations of the world see us. We're loved by some, we're hated by others, we're, people are in awe of us. There's, there's this very... People accuse us of, you know, being in places where we never were and being responsible for things that we have nothing to do with. It's, 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 it's a little bit... There's almost like a... Um, you know, it's, I'll tell you just something on a historical note, if you're, if you're not familiar with it already. And, uh, Alan Dershowitz uh, made a big point of this, publicizing this. The word anti-Semitism, um, which we think of today as, you know, anti, you know those lowlifes, how could they be so anti-Semitic? You know, you know, 
you know, against Jews for, you know, bad reasons and all the rest. Um, anti-Semitism was actually a term coined by an anti-Semite in order to make anti-Semitism a distinguished, acceptable, legitimate field. <laughs> because if you think about it, it actually has sort of a rarefied, very sort of erudite sound to it. If you think about it, if you just sort of take a step back from the word, anti-Semitism, it doesn't even have the word Jew in it, right? It's like a very academic term. And it was made by a Jew hater in order to give it to this patina of legitimacy. It's interesting. So, so Rabbi uh, Alan Dershowitz uh, wanted to um, reinstitute or institute a different term, get rid of anti-Semitism and, and Judeopathy. <laughs> right? Call it for call what it is. You know, it's this 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 pathological, you know, crazed, irrational response to Jews. You know. So so anyway. By the way, you should know something. I just learned this recently, but apparently it's, it's right there in the Torah. It's right there in the Torah, in the five books, right there, just openly in the psukim. Anti-Semitism is actually, is actually one of the things that Moshe prophesizes and is actually one of the things that Hashem says is going to happen to the Jewish people. You know, it's... Um, I was very surprised to learn that, but that's like straight out, right, openly right in the Torah, that the nations of the world are going to be against you. You know, if you don't have your act together, the nations of the world are going to hate you, basically. And so we shouldn't be surprised. In fact, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's, it's yet another prophecy in the Torah that's come true, and another instance of the, the, the truth of the Torah, as we can experience it today, that it exists at all, and that this thing was predicted when we were like a tiny people just hanging out in the desert, you know, thousands of years ago. So, so anti-Semitism as it exists is a message to us to get our act together, basically. That, that, that's what it is, you know. Uh, and and so, so we should just be mindful of that. Not that it's a good thing, not that we should therefore embrace it, we have to fight it, but we also have to recognize its larger message. Um, anyway, the point is this, that, that Ruben, as the firstborn of Yaakov, that his fallen status very much mirrors the role of the Jewish people in the world today. And that that's not a coincidence. And the fact that it's part of the month of Tammuz, which is remembering the time of the destruction of the temple, where the whole world gets out of focus and gets blurry, this is also not a coincidence. These things make perfect sense. And the fact that the world is driving toward perfection, And it's been prophesied that the month of Tammuz is going to be a holiday, and that that's going to correlate with the reemergence and the, the, the reparation of the status of Reuven, also makes tremendous sense. Now, let's just cover a point, um, because um, it's, it, it's important that we keep this in mind. What is the 17th of Tammuz? Which is, by the way, this Tuesday morning. Which is a fast day. 
What is this? What, is, what, is, what happened on the 17th of Tammuz? And what should have happened on the... Excuse me. And what should have happened on the 17th of Tammuz? Okay. So just in terms of background, and I'm going to go further back in history to the first 17th of Tammuz, but let's just keep in mind that the spies, the people who were sent by Moshe to explore the land of Israel, when it was still very much the game plan for the Jewish people to go from Mount Sinai, to go from Mount Sinai into the land of Israel, Moshe sends the spies, and the spies leave on their 40-day journey on Rosh Chodesh Tammuz, the first of the month of Tammuz. Okay? And they come back, of course, on the 9th of Av. Okay. So, in other words, this exploratory period happens in the beginning of Tammuz. So, that's already, you see, the foreboding, you know, like the, the, the sort of like the, 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 the bad ending that's coming, essentially, already from the beginning of the month of Tammuz, right? But, let's go further back. And, of course, and this is always, I think, just, just amazing just how these things work and the more you explore Torah, the more jewels that you find. And, and this is just and one, one more example of this. Every single month, in addition to having a tribe that correlates with it, has a different combination of the four-letter uh, name of Hashem that correlates with it. So what's the, what is the permutation, the tziruf, of Hashem's name for Tammuz? It's the Yudke Vavke, the name of Hashem, backwards. Right? It's Hey Vav, Hey and Yud. And, and that's a particularly resonant when you realize that the name of Hashem stands for mercy, Rachmin, and here it's being spelled backwards, which means din or judgment. And that's the name of Hashem for, for or the permutation for, for Tammuz. So you see all that kind of heaviness, basically, in the air. But let's go back further. When did the 17th of Tammuz really become the 17th of Tammuz? Right? So, the 17th of Tammuz is when Moshe smashed the tablets. That was on the 17th of Tammuz. Okay? Now, now that day was supposed to be the final sealing. Sealing with, a, um, with an S, as in like the completion of a deal the final sealing of the receiving of the Torah at Mount Sinai. Okay? So, let's just understand that for a moment, because I think that this, this piece of information is not widely known, and it, and it should be. You see, the rabbis teach that when we got the Torah at Mount Sinai, that we were on the level of Adam and Chava, Adam and Eve, before they ate from the Tree of Knowledge. Okay? And then, 40 days later, we, we made the golden calf, and Moshe smashed the tablets. Okay? Now, what hit me this year, and we, we gave a couple of talks on it, if you, if you want to listen to a more detailed talk on it, it's called Life at the Top. Right? So, that's, that's on the website, TorahOnItunes.com, if you want to listen to that in more detail. But anyway, the point is this, that... Um, that it just struck me that people just say that in one sentence. You know, we were on the level of Adam and Chava before we ate from the Tree of Knowledge, and then 40 days later we made the golden calf. So it took me many years to all of a sudden sort of stop the tape, which was, you mean for 40 days we were on the level of Adam and Eve before we ate from the Tree of Knowledge? 
That's kind of a headline statement right there, isn't it? Why don't we just dwell on that idea for a moment, you know? Like, that's, that's massive. That's massive. Forty days? So that, that, that leads to a number of questions. Like, why didn't Mashiach come? I mean, forty days, right? So, so the thing is, is that, I don't know if we hit the fortieth day, by the way. I think that may have been the problem. We didn't hit the 40th day because that's the day that we did the, the, the worshipping of the golden calf. Just by a few hours. Yeah. And, um, you know, one of, the, one of the amazing things, one of the beautiful things Rabbi Wolfson explains is that, um, you know, Kabbalistically speaking, there, there are four kind of, um, they, we say four worlds, but we don't mean independent worlds. We mean that you take the the universe as a whole, and you can divide it into four stratas, if you will. And um, they become, they go from the most material and physical, which is this realm, Olamasiya, we say, to Atsilut, which is the top, most ethereal realm. And each of those four worlds has the ten spherot in them. And the top level of the top of Olam. Uh, Atsilus, that's called Atika Kadisha. That's the most spiritual aspect. There's no, there's nothing that can be, uh, there's nothing that can be corrupted in, in 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 that part. Okay. Actually, he makes two very similar points. I, I I'm, I'm I'm making the one that I didn't mean to make right now. <laughs> but since I'm right at the verge of completing that thought, let me complete that thought, and then I'll return to the other one. You'll see how they're both almost identically related, but they both say two different amazing things. So, so, so each person is a world, right? Each person is a miniature world, okay? That's, that's, that, that's the greatness of, of, of understanding who you are and what you are and what this world is. Because when you understand that you yourself are a world, you understand that your smallest actions can positively affect the entire cosmos. Because you should understand that, that, that each person... You know, we say that there, that there are five levels to the soul. Okay, There are three of them that exist inside of you. That's your nefesh, your ruach, and your neshama. And then you have two that exist outside of you the Chaya and the Yechida. And those two aspects, which extend outside your physical body, actually go all the way up to the Kisei HaKavid, all the way up to the throne of glory. Okay? Which is this, basically the top of heaven, you know? So that means that each person... Well, first, first thing that that should tell you is that when you look at the mirror, or when you look at another person, you don't end where the top of your head ends. <laughs> okay? You... Everyone's a giant, basically. Everyone's a giant, you know? You're, you're a giant, and you're dealing with giants. So you should fully appreciate just what it is, another human being, you know? That, that in itself is amazing. But what it also shows you is that, is that each person individually straddles the entire cosmos. So that when you do something positive, even if it's in your house, by yourself, putting a coin in your charity box... You're literally shaking and affecting the entire cosmos because you extend from this world all the way to the top of heaven. So your actions impact the entire cosmos. Okay, so that, that's, a, that's an incredible thing. So now, what is this point that, um, 
So I'm going to tell you two different points you'll see very closely related based on this idea of four worlds and 40 parts because each of the worlds has 10 spheros, okay? So that's going to total 40. Bless you. So the, 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 the Torah says, and this is one of the many examples how you cannot understand what the Torah means without having the Talmud explain it. Remember, when God gave the Torah to Moshe at Mount Sinai, God himself explained what the passages meant. And that's what the Talmud is. See, the nations of the world don't have the Talmud. So they get confused. They, they, they get confused. They don't know what this passage means, what that passage means. But God himself explained what the passages mean. That's called the Torah Shabal Peh. That's the Talmud. That's the Gomorrah. That's the Mishnah. All of those terms are relating to God's own explanation of what the passages mean. I'll give you just an example, just so you should know. You know, and this is to me the most ironic and compelling example of how much the world misunderstands the, the, the Torah and, and maybe even the Jewish people, okay? Which is, it says in the Torah, it says, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. So, never in the history of the Jewish people does that mean, oh, you took out his eye, so now the great Sanhedrin is going to take a stick and poke out your eye. Never has that ever been instituted. That's a barbaric concept. And people make fun of that passage. They say, that's barbaric. And you know what? We're the ones who gave it to you. And we're the ones telling you it's barbaric. What are you telling us it's barbaric for? So what does it mean? It means workman's compensation. It means that if someone gets their eye taken out, right, while they're on the job, and they're a ditch digger, then you have to recompense them the salary that they're missing out, what they would have been making in their job as a ditch digger, but if they're a brain surgeon and they lose their eye, they're going to lose a different level of income. So you have to recompense them according to an eye for an eye, according to where they are. Now, when you hear that, you go, well, wait a second, workman's comp? That's, 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 that's like a very enlightened thing. You know, that's leagues ahead of where the world was at that, at that period of time. And yet, you see, it's being expressed in this, in this passage that people sort of like, accuse us of the, the very opposite of what it is. So this is what you need the Talmud for, to explain things like this, right? Okay. So, so, so the Talmud says that if someone does a certain classes of, 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 of wrong acts, that they're, that they're subject to 40 lashes. Okay? So the rabbis explain what 40 lashes means. It means 39 lashes. Okay, so you need, you need the Talmud for that, because otherwise, what am I thinking? It says 40 lashes, it means 40 lashes, but no. It's written in a certain context, which means 39 lashes, but you don't know that without the Talmud. So now Rabbi Wolfson explains 39 lashes, why is it 39 lashes and not 40 lashes? Ah, so then let's return to the cosmic model. Okay, every single person is a world. What did we say about the way the world is structured? There are four different parts to the world. There's ten different spherod in each part of the world. The top of the top level, the most spiritual aspect, Atika Kadisha, is not subject to impurity or corruption. That means in every single person, there's a part of us which is also never participating in any wrongdoing, which is also not subject to any corruption or wrongdoing. So therefore, it can't be 40 lashes that you get. It has to be 39 lashes at the most. Do you hear do you hear? Okay. So now, 
Now let's switch it back to the 17th of Tammuz. You see, if there are 40 parts to the universe, the 17th of Tammuz is when we made the golden calf. We weren't able to get to the 40th day without doing wrong. In other words, had we completed the cycle and gotten to the 40th day, then we would have been able to receive the full amount and receive the full receiving that we were supposed to receive at Mount Sinai, and that would have been the final completion of the receiving of the Torah, in this world anyway, in this chapter in history. But we didn't get to that point. It stopped, it stopped right short, because God gave us a test. And it's not that we lost interest, by the way. No one should think that the sin of the golden calf happened because we just lost interest. It says very clearly in the Talmud that God tested us. God was like, and it makes perfect sense because Rabbi Nachman explains it very clearly. Before someone receives the opportunity for a spiritual advancement in their life, they get a test. They get a test. So, so, so a lot of people, when they get a test, they go, Why is God testing me? Whereas the reality is, it says, it says tzaddikim love tests. You're not supposed to ask for a test, by the way. That's very, very important. You're not supposed to ask for a test. Because it says that you don't necessarily receive heavenly assistance to pass the test if you ask for a test. But if you just receive a test outright from God because that's where you're at, that's an opportunity where God is giving you the, the ability to advance. So it's actually a very positive thing. So it makes perfect sense that's not like God saying, oh, you made it 39 days, now I'm going to mess you up. That's not, that's not it. That's like, it's such an unsophisticated understanding of what, what, what went on. It was like, alright, we were about to make this leapfrog, like this quantum leap in spirituality in terms of the fixing of the entire world on the 17th of Thomas. Of course we're going to get a test. Of course we're going to get a test. And in that other talk, you know, you'll see that this test very much correlates with the test of Adam and Eve with the eating of the tree of knowledge. The golden calf and the eating from the tree of knowledge are almost parallel. Almost parallel. Right? And you can get into all the details of it. But of course we got a test. Just like Adam and Eve got a test. You know, who sent the snake? Do you see Adam and Eve go snake shopping? You know, we need a pet. You know, I'm a little, you know, we haven't had any kids yet. It would be really nice to have a pet around the house. You know what would be? I would love a snake. <laughs> Me too. Let's go. We'll poke around the garden. <laughs> we'll see, you know. That wasn't it. They weren't looking for the snake. The snake came to them. Just like it says, just like it says, that Hashem, well, it doesn't say Hashem, it says the Sutton, but we know there's only one power in the world. Who sent the Sutton? Hashem sent the Sutton. That the Sutton showed the Jewish people an image of Moshe's coffin, and everyone thought that Moshe was dead on the top of Mount Sinai, and that we were leaderless and everything like that. Right? So, so in both instances, you see, because Adam and Eve were created just a few hours before Shabbos. And if they hadn't eaten from the tree of knowledge, they would have gone into Shabbos, and that would have been the end of history as we know. Right there. So of course they got a test before that leapfrog, that quantum leap in spirituality of the world, right? Just like we got a test with the golden cow that came from God. Okay. So I want to add one thing now. Which is, well, first of all, you should know that there's a hint to this in the Torah. 
Rabbi Wolfson mentions it, that um, when Aaron, when the people come to Aaron and they're like, we want to build a golden calf. And this in itself is a huge subject in Torah. I mean, it's one of the most amazing things in the entire Torah. Aaron, Aaron knows that they're going to do it even without him. So Aaron sort of like says, okay, I'll, I'll participate in this, but only to try to get you to not to do it. Alright, so basically, in trying to save the Jewish people, he risked his own soul forever. Do you understand? It's, it's like, and everyone knows that Aaron is the one who made peace between people and was really, like Reb Shlomo says, the master of love. You know, so Aaron playing this role, it, and, and he suffered consequences. There, there, there are many explanations given why Aaron's first two sons, Nadav and Avihu, died. There are many, many explanations given. Many, many explanations. And many of the explanations, the majority of them, by the way, are because of the actions of Nadav and Avihu themselves. Right? Okay. But one of the explanations is because of Aaron's participation in the, in the sin of the golden calf. That's just one of the explanations that's listed for, you know, it's just what it is. So, in other words, don't think Aaron didn't pay a price for, for doing what he did. But here's the, here's the point. Aaron, Aaron said, um, let's wait till tomorrow, because he knows that Moshe is going to come down from the mountain, right? He knows. And he's trying to delay them, and maybe they'll get some sense in their head, right? So this is how he asserted his leadership. He said, let's wait till tomorrow, which was the 17th of Thomas, that was tomorrow. He says, because it's going to be a great, a great festival, and that was hinting at the fact that the 17th of Tammuz would have been the final receiving of the Torah. He understood that that was going to be it. He understood. But the people just, uh, they weren't able to, to grasp it. They, we, we just, we weren't at the level, you know. Anyway, one more point about this. You see, there's a big difference between the first tablets and the second tablets. The first tablets were written with the finger of God. And it said that the first tablets, they were like, there were so, there's so many miracles associated with them. The first tablets, um, the first tablets contained the whole Talmud, they contained the written Torah and the oral Torah, and, and everything was on them. Um, but more important than that, they, they were engraved. They were engraved. Okay? And um, and so engraved with the finger of God. And why that's so significant is the, the Lubavitcher Rebbe talks about the difference between writing and engraving. Okay, writing means ink on paper. That means that y- y- you receive it, but it doesn't necessarily penetrate your essence, right? Because you have the ink and the paper; they're separate things. They just happen to be together. But engraving, the writing becomes the object itself. With engraving, the object and the writing are one and the same. And so isn't it interesting, isn't it significant that the, that the event that didn't take place, the event that didn't take place was the receiving of the engraved luchos with the finger of God. In other words, 
We and the Torah and the world would have been all one, seamlessly connected, right? Instead of ink on paper. Instead of this illusion of our own identities, right? That I'm an independent power, independent from God. You see. So that got smashed. That, that didn't quite take place, you know? So that's, 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 the first, that's the first thing. But you see here, and here's maybe just to sum it up and to, to finish it up, you see here that the 17th of Tammuz, right, that in its essence is a great holiday. Because that's the final fixing of the, of the, the final receiving of the Torah. Right? And it will be a holiday again. Just like Ruvain will be restored. And when, when the Mashiach comes, when the world is perfected, when that oneness becomes manifest... Right? You see, what is one of the most beautiful prophecies? It says, the prophet Yeshaya, Isaiah, says the following. He says that, that the day is going to come, basically, where the world is going to be filled with the awareness of God, like waters fill the ocean. Now, think about that. What is the ocean? It's water! Water is the ocean! That's the level of engraving! It's one and the same. Do you follow? It's not that there's water in the ocean. It's not that there's a God awareness in my head. The waters fill the earth. The waters are the ocean. So the awareness of God is going to be utter and complete. That's the level of engraving. And that's what we're driving toward today. So, so any, any, anything that we can do in our life, because we're a miniature of the world, Right? Gets expressed and, and, and just sort of like goes from us and gets expressed in the entire universe. So just, uh, I'll just end with this, with this one uh, quote, which I, which I love. I love this thing. I'm reading a book review. It's about um, the history of surfing. Right? <laughs> and um, it says in the book review that the author, I wish I could put you his name, I don't remember, but the author ends the book on this quote. <laughs> And uh, I hope I get it right. It's, these are the words of a, of, a, of a Japanese surfer. Okay? So he says like this. Um, paddle, paddle, and sometimes comes big wave. <laughs> so that's it. We have to just stay in it. You paddle, you paddle, and then, you know, sometimes comes the big wave. So that's what we're waiting for. Okay. <laughs>